Hello, and welcome to Notes from the Conservatory, a podcast from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. This podcast is a chronicle of conversations and interviews with our faculty, students, and guest artists. I'm your host, Richard Cooper. Today, I bring you a conversation with the late Frank Pooler, who was the choir director at CSULB for 28 years, before retiring in 1988. Frank was internationally known as a master of the contemporary choral repertoire and creator of the technique known as choralography. He was also a mentor, teacher, and later collaborator with Richard and Karen Carpenter. Frank and Richard Carpenter co-wrote several pieces, including the Christmas classic, Merry Christmas, Darling. Here's my conversation with Frank Pooler, recorded in 2010. Let's, let's start off with how you became uh, a musician, then just talk about how we got you to Cal State Long Beach. My first real memories of music uh, have to do with uh, an aunt of mine who uh, liked the way I sounded when I was a boy soprano. And she lived in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, she had no children of her own. And uh, so she kind of was responsible for my total education, really, I mean, financially. And, emotionally backing. But she liked to have me sing in her church, and uh, I'd dress up in little choir boy outfits with big lacy collars and sing boy soprano. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a small town called Onalaska, Wisconsin, 1,300 people, and there was only 125 of us in the entire school system. In fifth grade, the school system decided they wanted a band. And I remember Mr. Nichols, who worked for music, Life Old Music in La Crosse, Wisconsin, coming up and telling us what instrument we should play, or we were qualified to play, or what we could afford to play. <laughs> One of the things I remembered, if you had tufts, f- fatty tufts at the bottom of your fingers, mm-hmm. you should play the clarinet, because it's filled the hole. <laughs> and if you had thin lips, it was, you played the trumpet. And when it came my turn, I wanted to play the saxophone, because I thought it was the sexiest looking instrument there was. I didn't give a hoot, but saxophone really looked great. I could just picture myself playing a horn like that. And um, there happened to be one in the family. My father had a cousin or something that had a saxophone. Unfortunately, there was no band part written for it. It was a C melody sax, and they were obsolete. Mm -hmm. But it's about the same size as a tenor, so I rented an alto sax and learned to play it from a book that cost 75 cents. They had a series of books that you could learn to play any instrument. All it cost was 75 cents, you could do it within an hour. And for a saxophone, that was true. Mm. It's got to be the most ridiculously simple instrument to play. I mean, to learn yeah. the, the basics of it. There's one note for each key. And if you want to go to the upper octave, you just push this octave key. And it was, so it was very easy and it was a very good looking instrument. So I finally got a sax. And uh, not having heard many bands, I thought we were really good. But I could just hear us now. It must have been really terrible. Uh, it was at the very beginning of World War II. We got a fellow in that I just thought was the greatest man that ever lived. He was not only the band director, but he had me singing in the choir when I was in eighth grade. And that was really special because I got to be with older guys. It's much more fun to be with older guys than be with guys your own age. So I got to sing in the big people's choir. And that was a thrill. And that guy made me so happy with what he was doing that I wanted to be just like him. What was his name? His name was Harold Ozzie. And in retrospect, he wasn't a great musician. I thought he was. How would I know? I had nothing to compare him with. But I, he was a great man because he made me feel special. Mm. 
and that's what I think teachers do. They make people feel special, or students do. Like he made me feel that way. And so I decided very, at a very young age that I wanted to just be him. I, if he had been a math teacher, I would have probably been a math teacher. But also I knew that uh, jobs for musicians were hard to find because there was only one in the whole school system. I mean, you had to know everything. You had to be band director, orchestra director, and choir director, and everything. And he also became superintendent of the school after two years, so we turned the high school into a conservatory, and it was fabulous. With this saxophone, and it being so ridiculously easy to play, uh, there was a band that was formed in the town right next door. They wanted kids from each of the high schools. There were three high schools in La Crosse, only one in Alaska. And I was invited to be placed in the saxophone section, and that was a lot of fun. We played for USO clubs, uh, United Service Organizations during World War II. We played every weekend, every Friday, and every Saturday night for the soldiers. And then we played high school proms and did all the usual stuff that big bands did in those days. And uh, we had our own group, but I also played with another group that was just getting started that really became big time and is now the biggest publisher in the world, that's Hal Leonard. Hal Leonard were two guys, two brothers, that formed a big band that was just one of the hottest things in the Midwest. And they were just breaking through into big time in the class with Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller and that type of thing when the draft blew them all apart. The Leonard brothers, their last name was Sorensen. One was Hal Sorensen and one was Leonard Sorensen. So they put their names together, but they tried to keep it from their father, who was a farmer, Scandinavian <laughs> Swedish farmer. And he didn't want his kids being in dance halls and dirty places like that. So they always hid it from him. So it was always Hal Leonard. He never found out about it until he got really big. Mm. Then one day they brought the band over to the farmhouse and played it for the old man. He was just thrilled. And the people at Hal Leonard didn't know this story evidently because I told it to them about five years ago. Mm -hmm. and they had no idea there was still somebody alive that had played with Hal Leonard. Mm -hmm. I just played as a sub because I was just a kid. How old were you then? 15, 16. Oh. And I played, I must have played well uh, because uh, I substituted in a lot of bigger bands than our kitty band. And uh, I even went on the road for a time with a fantastic black band. Uh, this big band that went through, um, the name will come to me, their saxophone player got appendicitis in lacrosse, and so they needed a sub, and I was the only one available, so I played with them. They liked what they did, and they asked me to go on the road with them. Here, I was 15 or 16 years old, going with an all-black band. Yeah. Uh, I had to get permission from my parents, of course, you know. And, uh, How'd they feel about it? They were okay with that. Yeah. They were okay because they, they, they met the director and they liked him okay. Yeah. So I went and wrote with them. That was a very good band. It came out of Kansas City. They were called area bands. They were really good, but they had one address like in Omaha, but they'd play wherever they could go on one night stands yeah. in a circumference or mm -hmm. a circle around Omaha. And I played with a lot of bands like that. And I wanted to be a history teacher and then make, do on the side playing in the big bands because yeah. I loved it. When I went to college, I, was, I wanted to study history. That was a must, because I'd always loved history, and I know history, things that I'm interested in. Those are the few, one of the few things that I do connect and memorize. Uh, not dates, but the significance of different historical things as I saw them. But when I went to college, I found out during registration that if you wanted to major in history, you also had to take chemistry. I knew I was dead. I could not get anything about physics or chemistry through my brain. And so I was going to quit and find some kind of job. And on the way out, I bumped into a guy and said, you really look sad. 
And I said, why? He said, why? And I told him that because I thought I was going to go to school here and become a history teacher, but I can't do it. He said, why don't you become a music major? He said, you don't have to take any science at all. You can take a bachelor of music degree, and then you can stay here. I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, you go over and see the head of the department and get him to sign a slip. What school is this? St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. And you were going in as a freshman? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went over and saw the head of the department, and he heard me sing and played some little passages that I had to sing back to him. He signed me up, and I became a music major <laughs> simply because I knew I couldn't get along with science, mm -hmm. but I was really wanted to be history. I got in the choir, and the, one of the big things about this school is its choir. It was one of the first colleges to ever have a choir that sang totally a cappella, and they had a very charismatic director named F. Medius Christianson, who was one of the founders of the college music choir singing programs in this country, along with a guy from Northwestern named Peter Lutkin. And the first time I was in that group, and this guy got up in front and gave a downbeat to some piece, the choir director gave a piece by his father, I was dumbfounded. I had never heard anything like that in my life. I was part of a chord and tune. Mm. And I just took it for granted that being out of tune was normal. <laughs> you know, that's the way things should be. <laughs> and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. There were a couple of times that I had this other life experience with with music. One of them I just mentioned, the first time I heard a, a chord completely in tune, I was, I'd never heard of such a thing. Perfectly balanced, perfectly blended, and I thought I was in heaven. Mm. And I thought, God, what would it be like to be able to do that every day, to, and figure out how to get what you were hearing in your head actually coming in through the timpani of your ear into your nervous system. And then there was that old man Christiansen that I was mentioned to you that founded the choir school singing. He did nothing but religious, and that made any difference in schools at that time. Mm. He, he either were a dumb glee club or he sang good music, and the music was religious. But that guy also was an organist in the church, and when I was in the choir, it was we had to stay in school on weekends because we had to be the official church choir. Mm. And I hated that, being having to go to church, except for one thing, to hear this man play the organ. Oh my God, it was... He'd pick up on something at the very opening of the service, pick up some melody or some kind of hymn, and weave it through the whole church service. You were all, it was like a symphony unfolding mm -hmm. for you. Everything in some way was related to what happened at the beginning. And to just be in the guy's presence, that he wasn't one of these directors that said, this is what's important. What's important to him was what you got out of his eyes. He was almost hypnotic. You'd look at him and you'd like a robot, you know, but he could do it just with it. He wouldn't have to have any arms. Mm. But here that man improvise was just beyond belief. And what was his name again? F. Medias Christiansen. Mm. The music master of the Middle West. That was the name of his biography. But also other experiences that I had, one was with uh, Lady Hudbetter, Lead Belly. You ever heard of Lead Belly? Oh, yeah. Okay. I heard him. I don't think there were any blacks in Minnesota, Wisconsin back then, because we certainly didn't have any in St. Olaf. I mean, they were all lily white. Mm -hmm. But we had these black artists that would come to campus, and that was another side of everything to hear, to hear mm -hmm. uh, Lead Belly. I had just been exposed to spirituals. I found a book by Craybill called Afro-American Folk Songs, mm -hmm. which was the first, I think, academic study of uh, Negro spirituals in this country, and I loved it, because I'd heard Roland Hayes, who was another guy that just electrified me when I was young with the way that he 
communicated. His voice was gone, but the spirit was still there, and he still was singing the words, and he understood the words. And then I heard Lead Belly doing these plantation songs and these work songs, and it was transformative. So Lead Belly actually came through and performed there? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, the year before he died. Those experiences that you have that when you're young that contribute, I guess, in retrospect to something that you became later on, had just made me convinced that there is no one kind of music. Roland Hayes was a master at what he did, and he was, he was well into his 60s at that time, the voice was gone. But he could still sing Schubert and French, the chansons and the Italian songs, as well as the spirituals. And you didn't care if he had any voice or not. You didn't care. Mm. Yeah, because there was something beyond just showing off pretty pipes. One of my teachers in college that I really admired quit St. Olaf after many, many years of teaching there to take a job in a small college in Illinois. And I was just about to go into graduate school at that time, and he asked if I wouldn't come down there and help him out, because as soon as he'd taken that job, he got another job, a bigger job, and he wanted me to help him out at this one college called Shimer College in Monte Carlo, Illinois. And I just followed him when, when he left, so I was really lucky. I just stepped right into it. When you graduated, you followed him? Yeah, yeah. When I graduated, I went uh, one year off, and then I followed him into his job. I helped him at Shimer College, and mm -hmm. I took his job there. I was there for five years. It was very good. And what was your position there? Well, there was only three of us in the music department, so I was head of the music department, I guess. <laughs> the other one was my wife. <laughs> but I wasn't hired just to teach music. My, my field at that time was humanities. Hmm. And so, I was so my job was teaching humanities. But also, the, they had an elective for the kids in school for a choir, and so I had experience with that, so I did that too. The, the years I spent at this Shimer, which I still consider as one of the best colleges in the country, it was a school, of, a great book school. It's in downtown Chicago right now. It's located there. Now, was it, was it in Chicago when you were teaching there? No, it was in Mount Carroll, Illinois. Oh. It was in a bucolic northwestern corner of Illinois. Hmm. Beautiful spot about 10 miles from the Mississippi River. But it was isolated from all transportation systems. But it offered the same program in general education that they offered at the college in downtown south side of Chicago. Mm. And it was a school only for bright kids. It was for early entrance. You could enter after two years of high school if you could pass the entrance examination. Mm. And you couldn't major in anything. Mm. It was general education. And you had no idea until you took the entrance examination how long you'd be in college. If it take you one year to get your bachelor's degree, or it might take you three or four, mm. depending upon how you did in the placement examinations. And the teachers there taught, we taught cross-sections. I had to teach science one semester. It was always by discussion, and it was always no textbooks. The Great Books Program was called, and it was founded by Robert Maynard Hutchins, who was president of the University of Chicago. And uh, he figured that any educated man could carry his library in the backseat of his car. No textbooks, that's a, still a bad word in my brain today. I mean, you read original sources and you discuss them with the students and classes, wide open discussion about anything. Everybody had to know what was going on. Keep with the thing, and music was, it became an integral part of humanities, one. And I loved it. A lot of, we had a lot of visiting musicians that came, a lot of visiting literary people and painters, because it was that kind of school. And here I was in my early 20s, and most of the teachers there were in their 40s at that time, and at first I was just kind of in awe of what was going on. Uh, it was kind of like a sponge, and I absorbed it all. And I, but at that time, 
Shimer and the University of Chicago, and they were pretty much ruled by Robert Maynard Hutchins' philosophy of education, particularly for bright people. He thought that high school was a waste of time for a bright kid. And so he devised, he and a guy named Mortimer Adler, who was really responsible for that. He says, 100 great books, that's all there is, that's all you need to know, because that contains the wealth of everything you need to know about mm -hmm. liberal art. And people that wanted their kids to have that program didn't want their kids to live in the south side of Chicago, which was really tough and mm. gangrene. I mean, Al Capone had only been gone about 10 years. And, but they wanted them to have this kind of education they could offer it out in this western part of the state that was beautiful and safe. I was just lucky, just lucky to be a part of that. I came in through the back door and ended up in this paradise that just, I learned more than the kids that I was teaching did, and they were smarter than I was in many instances. So it was a grand experience, but I thought, you know, it was my first job, and I thought there's always got to be something better than your first job. And sometimes when I look back, there wasn't. So I quit to take another job. I was writing a lot of music at that time, and a lot of it was choral music, and a lot of it had religious texts because there wasn't much of a market for anything in the school system other than minstrel songs mm -hmm. and, and glee club songs, you know, dippy songs. The only really serious music was for voices of Palestrina and Victoria and the mm -hmm. Renaissance composers and this type of thing. An opportunity came along for me to do it in a huge church with a salary that was much, much better than I could make in a, in a school. Mm -hmm. And I had two little children at that time. And so I took it. I had a free house and, and I was writing a lot of the music that would fit into that atmosphere. And I was really well acquainted with that church background. It was a Norwegian Lutheran church. It's one I grew up in. So it was like back home again, only with in splendor. And the first day I was back there, I hated it. I knew I'd made a mistake. I just knew it. And I tried everything to get out of it. And I could Fortunately, after one year in that church, I got a big fellowship from this American Scandinavian Foundation to go back to Norway. I'd been in Norway and met a lot of musicians. So I spent a year there, and I went back to graduate school. Where, where did you go to grad school? The University of Iowa first. And the University of Oslo, but they were all the same. I was listening to some guy hawking his own thing, you know. And, uh, what I always found interesting about higher education were the people that I met. And I can't remember for the life of me of anything of great significance that I ever took in the class. And I was fortunate that I went back. I was there because I put my name in for one of these placement agencies to get a job, any kind of job, to get out of this church. And I got a job best high school in the country. It was called New Trier Township High School in yeah, North Side of Chicago, in mm -hmm. Winnetka, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And it was a high school, it was a rich, rich community, one of the richest in the country. North Shore Chicago is a lot of wealthy people there. And they supported that school way beyond the tax base. I mean, my job there was to teach composition. And the kids that I were to teach had two years of harmony, a year of counterpoint and orchestration. And uh, my job was to uh, teach a composition in larger forms to these kids that had this thing. And there wasn't enough for me to do there. I mean, I met once a day and I complained to the other guys, give me something else to do. I just want to sit around here you know, all day long. And so I took a sophomore boys chorus and that was interesting because uh, I never worked with young kids before, that young, 14, 15. And an interesting thing, Richard, was that I had a couple of kids that were really good composers, a couple of them took some advice that I had, went to Mills College and studied with Mio and other people like that, became a really good Passacarabal. Caballero is a fine lady composer now. He's an old lady now. 
And I had Ann Margaret in one of my classes. Really? She sang in the chorus, yeah. Wow. She was Ann Margaret Olson. And she was just graduating from her chair that year. If they had a kid in, in high school that wanted to go to a college that they didn't know about, they'd send a faculty member, the high school faculty member, down to investigate the college to see if it was good enough for an interior graduate. You know some of the graduates were? In, uh, they were big in theater. Ann Margaret Olson, Charlton Heston, Rahm Emanuel, the guy, the Secretary of Defense uh, under uh, Bush, I can't think of his name right now, he was a true graduate, on and on, and they're full of movie stars and acting, politicians on the North Side. And so it was a, an interesting place to be, but I just, the age group didn't, uh, didn't suit me very well. I got a telephone call one night, it was in February, and Evanston, Illinois is on the shores of Lake Michigan. And Lake Michigan, as you know, is a gigantic ocean. It's 90 miles across to, mm -hmm. from Chicago to Michigan at that spot. It was February. And it was about 10 below zero. And with the wind chill temperature, it was about 60 below. And I had a room that had no foundation underneath it. It was an enclosed carport. <laughs> oh, I just, I was so cold. And I got this call from a guy named Larry Peterson. He said, I'm from Long Beach State. And I said, where is that? He says in California, because there are a lot of law beaches. And he says, we're calling to see if you'd be interested in a job helping us organize a choir uh, department out here in Long Beach. And I asked him what the temperature was. And he told me, he said, it was 80, it was like this. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> he says, you don't want to know what the job is or, or what you're going to be paid? I says, no, get me the hell out of here. He says, somebody will call you within the next couple of days and you have to go down to the Stevens Hotel in downtown Chicago and interview the president. And he's the guy that founded Long Beach State. His name was P. Victor Peterson. He was the organizing president of Long Beach State. I said, okay, I'll do that. So I went down to the Stevens. It's just uh, Chicago and its suburbs are connected by an elevated railroad, mm -hmm. JL. And I lived close to an L station, so I got on the thing and went down and to Stevens. There's a whole bunch of people waiting to see this guy. And I was first he, on the list, and so I went and talked to him. He's an old Swedish guy, and uh, I liked the looks of him right away. And I liked what he said to me. He said, you know, he says, I don't know a thing about music. It's not the first thing about it. He says, I'm just mainly, my job right now is to uh, interview people to see if they're livable. I said, well, okay, yeah, uh, what should we talk about? And then he said, well, he said, uh, what do you think we should talk about? I said, well, you're P. Victor Peterson. Sounds like you're a Scandinavian of some kind. He said, yeah. I said, well, oh, so am I. I've lived in Norway quite a bit. So we talked about uh, furniture and all kinds of stuff I knew nothing about, but I, I knew that I liked it right away. And uh, the conversation got so friendly, I started thinking about those people that were waiting to see him. I said, you know, you've got a whole bunch of people down there waiting to see all this. Let them wait. <laughs> and, uh, I said, I really have to go. <laughs> it was getting late and it was cold outside and I had that elevated drive back to the north side. And he said, well, he says, you're livable. He says, Larry Peterson wants you. He says, he can have you. I said, good. And then I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks, so I forgot about him. And then a friend of mine called. He said, congratulations. I said, what for? He says, you got the job at Long Beach State. I said, how do you know? He said, because I applied for it. And he says, I called up to see what the status was. And they said, they just hired you. But they got a hold of me that day. And so I said, he told me about what the job was like and what it paid. I remember I was paid $6,000 a year. 
and that was half of what I was getting at with Trigger, but I wanted out of there like crazy. So I came to uh, Long Beach State, had no place to live, and uh, so I stayed with some friends and got acquainted with this dear man, Larry Peterson, who was head of the department. Started work right away. You know what year was this? I came. I started at Long Beach in the fall of 1959. Yeah. yeah what was it like when you first got here? Like your first year or two teaching? It was joyful. Yeah. I loved it. We were still. They were still finding their way. The school had only been in existence for ten years. Mm -hmm. What was your workload like? What classes did you have? Well, I had it written into my contract at the very beginning that I would have my rehearsal at 11 o'clock every day, five days a week. That was a must. Good. I found out that young people, their minds work better from 11 to 12 because they're a little hungry. They've been up and their voices are warmed up just from the mere fact of talking. Mm -hmm. And after dinner or after lunch or something, everybody's logy. So I got them when they were hungry and when their minds were most alert and when the voice had been warmed up a little bit. That was the criteria. Mm -hmm. I had to take pretty much what showed up for the first year I was, first semester I was here because they didn't have any tradition for singing or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I'd had enough experience and I had enough sound ringing around to know what I wanted and I knew that it was ridiculously easy to get it. Mm -hmm. you didn't have to, it wasn't like learning brain surgery or learning how to teach somebody to play the violin, to teach someone to sing in tune. Once you've heard it, being sung in tune is pretty easy. But so after the first semester, I think 35 kids showed up and we did our first concert for 35, but from then on we had a lot of people showing up for auditions, more than I could ever use. They had music majors and they had a lot of very talented students. But I never thought it was particularly because of the department. I always figured that it was because of the proximity to Los Angeles. Because that's where the auditions were. This was a pleasant place to live in Long Beach. And it was close to cattle calls and everything else for theater people and music people and most of the auditions were there. So we got a lot of talent that we probably wouldn't really deserve yeah. from people that didn't want to like, you know, in Chicago people wanted, to, people that knew something wanted their kids to have a good education but they didn't want them to live in the south side of Chicago. Right. So it was just kind of an extension of what Shimer College was, Long Beach State. We just profited from the fact that we were close to LA but we, it was better living conditions here and more mm -hmm. pleasant. You came out here with your wife and your kids? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, you moved into this house? Not, I bought this house before I even started school. Oh, yeah? But it wasn't built yet. The first thing I did was when I came out here, as I said, I was staying with some friends. And I met the head of the department, Larry Peterson, who had just moved into this tract. And he said, buy a house there, you'll never regret it. He said, you probably have to rent for a year because it isn't built yet. I said, well, how do I do it? And he gave me pictures of the 12 house plans. He said, you go down to the place was right down the street here. He says, you go down there with those plans and tell me you want this house and have $500 with you and give them $500 and they'll ask you a few questions. You pick out your plan and they'll tell you when you can move in. So I showed up was the, toward the end of August before Long Beach State with $500, which was a lot of money then. Mm -hmm. And the plan I wanted, this was the cheapest house because I didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. Put it down, he says, do you have any kids? And I said, yeah. He says, you want to be near a school then? I said, okay. School's only over here, block. Mm -hmm. And uh, I gave him the money and he put a pin. He says, we'll be ready the 1st of May next year. And 1st of May, we moved into this house in 1960. And that first year was, it was wonderful. I just really loved it. Yeah. The local politics at that time were really interesting in the music department. 
1959 was a year when they hired a lot of younger faculty. That's when I came and Julian Masafia came, John Green came, who founded the band program here. Mm -hmm. And then there were the people who were here, the original faculty. One of them I had gone to Mills with. He taught history, McGarrity. Uh, but they had the new faculty and the old faculty. And the old faculty didn't like the department chairman. They wanted to get rid of him and get one of their own as department chairman. And they tried to get the new guys to come along with them. Well, we had a loyalty to the guy that had hired us. And we didn't know anything you know, that had gone on in the music department politically before that time. Yeah. So I personally, I felt loyal to the guy that hired me. Yeah. We uh, outnumbered the other guys, so we voted against them. So it's really kind of bitter feeling between the older guys and the younger guys in the music department. Yeah. Politically, that was. I mean, we were still like, Congress is supposed to be after six o'clock, your friends again. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the guys was on the opposite side uh, that I was on when we became one of my best friends, Charlie Becker. He was a fantastic theory guy. Smoking in class was allowed at that time. He could smoke and he could hum in two parts at the same time. <laughs> you could see the smoke coming out, and somehow he could make two different sounds. We had this sharp division, but the younger people prevailed because they simply outnumbered the old people. And that went on for a long time until finally the older people memoed our department chairman. We made John Green out of the school. They just memoed him to death with copies of, to the president, copies of everybody in the whole bloody world. So politically it was a mess. And I don't think the department quite knew where they were going, but there were a lot of talented people here. John Green was very good. And, uh, and this guy, Dolan, Leon Donald who wrote this textbook, he wrote a lot of textbooks. He was a scholar. Tyndall had written books on uh, Robert Tyndall. He was division chairman for a while. He was a bassoon player. He had written books on form that were formidable. <laughs> and uh, there were good people and they were kind of fun to be around socially. It was so, I had so much to do. The kids were little, the kids were just getting started in school. My children were. And I'd moved. I'd never owned any house before until I'd moved out of rent or something like that until I had this house. So getting that going was pretty much. But it was a very satisfying beginning. I really, I really like Long Beach State and I liked it from the beginning. And I still do. Mm -hmm. I have absolutely no gripes about Long Beach State. The first concert that I ever gave was in the gymnasium. I remember setting up all the chairs and taking them down and being oh. responsible for getting them rented and everything like that. You know, I, and as we uh, grew, then Larry Peterson was said, hey, what do you want? And so he, he gave me assistance, you know. Let's see, how long was Larry Peterson there? He was there until the mid-60s, I think. Okay, and then who was after him? Russell Squire was his name. He was in music education. He, uh, I think teaching was a sideline for Russell. He was a tour guide operator, tour agency, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, he organized a very nice tour for the choir, one of the early ones we took to Scandinavia in the wintertime. He took us there. Uh, I remember I'd been in Norway the year before. So it must have been about 68 because I'd had a sabbatical in Norway uh, in 67. And I talked to a, a very fine composer. He was in charge of music for UNESCO at that time. And he said, why don't all you American groups come here in the summertime? He says, place or empty houses, he says, he says, you should come during the concert season, during the wintertime when people go to concerts. They don't go to concerts in Scandinavia in the summertime or out with their nose in the sun. Mm. I said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. He says, it's cold, he says, but you'll get good crowds and appreciative crowds. And so Russell organized 
a tour. We went to Norway, Sweden, Leningrad, Finland in January. We were fabulous. We had great crowds and great critics and all that kind of stuff. What gave me uh, greater pleasure uh, in what I was doing at Long Beach State was the stuff that I did outside of Long Beach State that just happened to come in because, again, it's the area here where, uh, you know that, where you can, you can't meet people, for God's sake, in Elberly, Minnesota, you know, but here you just bump into people every day. Mm -hmm. And another turning point in my life as I look back on it was just going to a dinner party at um, a lady that sang in my church choir, who was such a fabulous contralto that everybody that had a touring choir, like Roger Wagner, Robert Shaw, Norman Lubuff, they always wanted her. And at the end of the touring season, they'd always, uh, she'd always have a dinner for them. And she'd always invite to me, because I was her director at the church. And so I met all these guys that I wouldn't have met otherwise, and Norman, Norman Lubov was an enormous influence on my life, enormous. And that had nothing to do with anything that I, he never heard of the choir. Mm. It was just kind of an instantaneous kind of chemical thing. Mm. And he had never, he'd heard of Scandinavia, but he had nothing to do with it. He was really big in uh, pop music. Mm. Norman was enormous in early radio in Chicago. Norman and Mel Torme were two of the finest musicians to come out of that radio period in mm -hmm. in the 30s. And I met up there were people that sang in my choirs. And it was Norman that really got me going on uh, publishing mm -hmm. music that I find in Scandinavia. When did, you, when did you start your publishing company? I had published a lot of music independently with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But I was going to Scandinavia to scout out new and interesting music for my own choir to sing here at Long Beach because I had a lot of contacts having gone to school and spent a lot of time in Scandinavia when I was young. And I knew all the guys over there and I was going to get them to write to English texts and so we could sing their stuff over here. And before I left, I wanted to uh, get all this stuff published so I went to Long Beach State and I said, hey, I'd like to start something called the Long Beach State Choir Series. And I said, you can't do it. I said, why not? He said, we can't associate the name with anything commercial. I remember asking the lawyer, I said, what the hell do I do with it then? He said, call it the Frank Puller series. He said, good idea. I did that's how I started because long you said I couldn't use the name. Oh, I see. Uh, and Norman, I told him, I said, I've got, before I left, I said, I've got a lot of uh, publishers want some of this stuff, but they only want the easy stuff. Hmm. He says, I'll take it all. And he says, furthermore, I'll take anything you give me. So it was just carte blanche, anything that I want to publish. Publish. How many pieces have you published in the Frank Puller series? Two or three hundred, it must be. But I published a lot of other people. I've got one whole series that has, you won't find my name on it any place. Mm. What's that, that one called? Aberdeen. Aberdeen. And that was mainly composers, student composers from Long Beach State. What happens, you find out what a person does well and let them do it. Mm. You don't, I've learned very early, you don't find out what a person can't do and make them do it because they start hating you and they're doing whatever they can do worse. But if you find out what they can do and say, hey, do this, mm. and then they're open to anything and you just see them blossoming like these fast photo flashes of flowers mm. growing up like that. Yeah. Find out what somebody does well and let them do it and you can learn from them. Well, as long as we're on that subject, I was wondering if I could get your take on the characters. Richard has an earlier memory that I do. He came up playing for some piano audition. He said, I was one of the judges. I don't remember that. First time I was aware of him, there was a tenor that he brought and that came up and was auditioning for the choir. It was during the summertime before school started. And 
Yes. He was coming in as a freshman? Yeah, yeah. And Richard was playing for him, and I just think he was okay, but I never liked the operatic kind of voices. I don't like nice voices. I mean, I like nice voices, but I don't like them solo voices. And this kid was that, but he was a good kid, but I was just dazzled by the accompaniment. And Richard was a student there at the time? No. No. Where was he from? He was from New Haven. He came from New Haven, Connecticut. Oh, so what was he accompanying? He was accompanying this kid because he was a friend of his. They oh. both went to the same high school. Oh, I see. They went to Downey High School. Mm. And he was accompanying this kid. And I said, can you sing? And he says, yeah. and he says, I don't know. I never tried. And so I played a few patterns for my normal audition. He was fantastic. He was I had one of these ears, I could hear something and pick on just like that. I'd make them harder and longer, no matter what I could do. He just was astonishing. Mm -hmm. and I didn't, I wouldn't have cared if he was a monotone, I'd have wanted him. Because mm -hmm. I, what I was interested in me was ears, not voices. Mm -hmm. And so we uh, struck up a, an acquaintance, and uh, he came to school uh, the next year, he's a freshman. And he came to Long Beach, I guess he'd already been accepted or something like that, because he said he had auditioned as a pianist or something mm -hmm. like that. But, I wasn't even the piano playing that I detected that particularly thrilled me. It was the way he put notes together. He puts them together in an interesting fashion. It just wasn't, you know, one note following it. You know, another musician that I've ever admired that I, that I always liked his voice too, but the way he sang it was Perry Como. I've never heard anybody quite like him. I've never heard of legato, where every word was understood. I heard him singing the other night. And so, at the beginning of some movie, it was the life of uh, Graziano. Mm -hmm. Somebody up there loves me, and Perry Cole was saying the opening song. Oh, God, what, a, what an ear. What. And then Carmen had this great ear, and he came up and he was in the choir, and he played for me. And he did some arrangements. So I had a great gospel singer that year named Wanda Freeman, whom Mahalia Jackson, who came through Long Beach State, heard her. She, and she said to uh, Wanda, she said, well, I'm dead, honey. You're going to be number one. And Richard just played for her. These gospels, he improvised gospel companies. Fantastic. And then he used to bring Karen up on weekends, on Saturdays, to uh, take voice lessons. And she didn't need voice lessons. So we kind of turned it into another one of these things of, you know, what do you do best? Richard would write pop songs and she'd sing them. First of all, she was going to enter Long Beach State. And to do that, she had to sing the usual Schubert and Schumann and all that kind of stuff that some of these kids that were really good at the time, weren't really interested in. And I don't think it had done them any good anyway, but they had to do it. They had to sweat through that stuff. So we'd do the mandatory things that I knew that she had to pass the entrance exam, and she had to you know, sing in German and Latin. And every Saturday she'd come up and take a voice lesson, but we'd do his songs, and new songs, and we'd do the obligatory thing. Then he'd take her up to Hollywood for a drum lesson. He carted her all around. She was a chubby little high school senior at that time. <laughs> But there was something in that voice that you knew was really good. And she had a great sense of humor. One thing she could do, she could imitate somebody with hair that for some kind of oh. deformity and make fun of them or something like that. She was oh. really funny. Uh, she had a, a pixelated sense of humor, but she had this great range. And she had an ear just like Richard. And I remember it came time for an audition. It was Larry Peterson, a guy named Charlie Nicewetter, and myself. Nicewetter was one of these sticklers for dotting all the T's and following everything that was in the book. But there was no denying the talent. He was just fabulous. And then I said, come on, sing something funny for them. So she, she'd do her act for them too. She came to school then the following year. 
you know, he had a great time. I got some great pictures of that first year carriage. He'd play, we'd do concerts and we'd do some of his arrangements with Karen with her drum set and play the drums and singing and all that kind of stuff. But she, although she sang a lot of souls with us, she would feature her primarily as a drummer. She's a fabulous drummer. Fabulous. And at that time when there was no commercial music here, and the only one that had any kind of contact with pop music or jazz or swing was myself. And that's really how I met them. They'd audition for everything. And just the other night, I was, I was trying to figure out when we had done this Merry Christmas, darling. And I found a date in some of my diaries, and I found that they were singing at the Golden Pheasant or some restaurant in Anaheim. And one night we had a big party over here at this house, and uh, Richard and Karen were playing someplace. I remember at the end of the party here, we all went down to hear them. It was the first time we'd heard them perform in this Golden Pheasant place. It, it was kind of, when they were here, you kind of got used to having that kind of talent because we'd had Arlene Auger and we had uh, Larry Carlton was here with him in Venice. Mm -hmm. And uh, Marmalee Carriaga, who was Giancarlo Minotti's favorite soprano, she still lives in town. She's an interior decorator, and her husband used to be a music critic for the LA Times, Danny Carriaga. So, we, you know, they didn't get lost, but there was a lot of other stuff going on. In fact, the most popular singer we had when Karen first came was this Wanda Freeman, with Richard playing for her. When Mahalia came to town, Mahalia Jackson, uh, somebody found out she was coming to dedicate some hospital, and they persuaded her to come up to school and sing a concert, and to fill in before she got there, because we didn't know what time she'd do. We had the little theater, that's what we called it, the upper campus. We had Karen and Richard start this kind of show, and they were playing until Mahalia came up so we could feature Wanda, and Richard played for her. I've got some great recordings of him, great recordings of him playing uh, gospel music. Peace be still with Wanda singing. She's still singing, Wanda is up in Reno area right now. And I've got a recording of Karen and Wanda singing a duet. Hmm. And the words are so interesting. It was a big hit with blood, sweat, and tears. There was a group of that kind. It was, and when I die, wrapped the coffin a lot because I hear it's cold, crazy cold way down there. I've got a great recording of that. It was kind of Camelot in the 60s. It was just Camelot here because the kids weren't put in harnesses. And if they were, they broke out of them fast. It was a melting pot that was good for a teacher if he was willing to go with what the students had to offer. What made it fun for me is that I, although I was not trained, I hung out a lot with pop and jazz. And anybody could learn the other stuff and learn the techniques and just by reading the books, you know. Mm -hmm, yeah. But it's that, it's that other life, you know, that Long Beach State was conducive to at that time. It was a so building pot. What I'm curious about is when did the Carpenters' career, when did they become big and were they still here at Long Beach when that happened? Yeah, yes. They were still going to school. But uh, they had a tape and there was a guy that worked for Herb Alpert I can't think of his name right now, but he had his own studios at his garages. And he heard them and he made some recordings of them and he took a play for Alpert and I said, I like him very much. So he made their first album. I remember Richard coming back. He says, uh, he tried to keep it quiet because he says, I tell anybody here, it'll be all over. And he says, I don't know if it's going to work out or not. Mm. He wouldn't even tell me what company it was at first, but he finds it's a and 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 that was the oh, best yeah. at that time. And uh, they had high hopes and I remember the night that this album came out. That was, wow. the, that was the first album. And he gave me the first copy of it. Look yeah. at the back of the nice autograph. Yeah. Burt Backrack had heard them and he liked them and he asked her to uh, do a show at the Greek Theater. He was doing a show and he wanted them to be the first act. 
and he gave him some tunes, and one of them was close to you. And that hit, and that started, and it was almost overnight from that time on. Uh, they both immediately, neither one of them graduated. But you still had contact with them after they left the school? Oh, yeah, yeah, they'd come back and give concerts for us to raise money so that we could go and do stuff. Yeah, we, I remember giving gym, concerts in the gym, concerts down at Lee's Church. They were always doing benefits so that we could make the trips that we wanted to make. We wouldn't have been able to go unless Karen and Richard had given concerts for us. Um, now, the other thing I was interested in is the choir itself became well-known in the choir world, and you became well-known as a choir director. When did that really start? You know, I think it started with uh, my association with Blue Ball. The first uh, convention of the American Choir Directors, and we were asked to sing avant-garde music. So I was kind of fascinated. I got a lot of manuscripts. Some of it was good. It was with Lubov because he had a series of, uh, of workshops in the summertime in different universities and colleges, maybe six of them every summer, for week-long things. And I was part of that crew, and my job was to advance the cause of new music. And they had another guy to do religious music, somebody else for education, and that kind of thing. Where would you go? All over the world. We did in Sweden, and oh. Norway, and New York, and all over. We did one in Long Beach State once. We brought Eric Erickson, the world's greatest choir director. He was here. He lived here with me for a week. And uh, I think that was it because the people that came to that were high school and college and church directors they'd come to that. There'd be two, three hundred of them there. And I'd do my thing and my thing was kind of new to them because they were used to just doing you know, the traditional repertoire. And I think that's, to answer your question, I think that had to, be, had to have been it. It had to have been not how we did this, this stuff, but the stuff that we did was kind of off the beaten track because I featured what the kids could do. And we had better pop arrangers. Pete Williams is the best arranger of popular music in the world. He was here four years. And uh, we had singers like Karen and Wanda Freeman and Arlene Alger. And as I said, I just did what they told me to do. Sure. Somebody asked me once, why don't you ever do spirituals? And I said, because I don't know how to do it. I don't feel it. And she said, well, if you don't know it, sit down and I'll show you. It was a black girl, it was Wanda. She showed that choir how to sing. Mm. You'd turn the lights off, or you'd hear a recording, you'd swear we were black. Mm. And then we'd go into a different style of Palestrine, and you'd swear we were from the Vatican. Mm. Because it was, it was fun, and it did not come from me. There's always a give and a take between somebody that stands in front of a group and the group itself. If it's just this way going out, it's no good. What was fun for me was getting what was coming to me. And it's not a Pollyannish point of view, it's absolutely true. I learned more from the students that were standing in front of me every day than I ever learned from any professor that stood professed garbage that I could have picked up in a textbook. The, the, the moving of choreography. Choreography, yeah, when did that start? Yeah, I got bored. That's when it started. <laughs> I just got bored of seeing choirs just stand up there. And most of them were so deadpan, you know, they're just interested in blending and all that kind of stuff. It didn't matter what the text was, they always looked the same. They looked like singing statues. And I thought, it's just fun to watch bands, even if you can't stand band music, because you got this shiny stuff all going off, you know, two buzz of different objects. And I'd read a lot of the Greek dramas, and I was aware of what the Greek chorus did. They not only uh, made comments on what was going on the stage, they made pantomime. And I figured you can't dance and sing at the same time. You can't do it. It's just impossible. You can't get your breath, you're doing all kinds of... So the movement had to be from the waist up. I wouldn't interfere with the singing process, but it just had to portray a visual aspect of what I thought that it should be. So I thought, we, they not only have the song, but now they have something to look at. And that's how that started. Mm -hmm. Started one piece, and I got a guy from theater, 
named P.L. Shoup, who loved the idea, and uh, I never devised anything. I never did anything. I always just got all the credit for it. He and I put out a book together on choral Arfield. He'd come and coach the kids, and pretty soon the kids Rhonda did a lot of wonderful choreography. But we, I didn't want to do it too much because it, it was such a novelty that if you do it all the time, it gets boring. But if you do it just occasionally out of clear blue sky, you're doing rather traditional things, and it's putting something with people moving very expressively. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people hated it, too. I remember one critic says it, we looked like 60 pips of <laughs> This has been Notes from the Conservatory from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. Thanks for listening.